So our text this morning, continuing in 1 Peter, is one of contrast. Like many other passages, or all of Scripture itself, the Bible uses as a teaching tool that of contrast. From the very beginning, we see that God created light out of the darkness. He brought chaos into order. The tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. Again and again, there are these pictures of contrast. And like every good teacher, to help you understand the positive, you must put it in contrast with the negative. You must be able to put it against something because the good is only good when we realize how bad the bad is. And the Bible is a brilliant teacher if you know how to let it teach you. Because many times we are trained to just pick out a verse here or there, but we don't look at what it's teaching us. Because if the Bible was just a set of facts, we would not learn the same way if it, was, if it wasn't a set of examples. If I just tell you do X, Y, and Z and then this will happen, you might get it. But if you realize what happens if you don't do those things, if you realize what happens outside of that example, then it begins to dig deep. And we know in our lives the examples that, that we have learned are the ones that we've, that we've gone through. We don't usually learn things the easy way, right? We don't learn things. Someone tells us, don't touch fire. You'll get burned. Don't stick your finger in a light socket. We don't necessarily learn that. So we stick our hand in the fire. So we stick our hand, our finger in the light socket as an example. You're like, oh, I never want to do that again. And it stays with you. So the Bible is full of those examples, positive and negative, to stick with us, to show us, look at the mistakes David made. Look at the mistakes Moses made. Look at the mistakes Paul made. Look at the mistakes the disciples made. Look at what the world did to Jesus. Let that be an example to us. Because the Bible always is seeking to point you toward the narrow way and discourage the wide way. Because the wide way is the easy way. This contrast continues all throughout Scripture. This morning before service, we read from Psalm 1. The thesis statements, all the Psalms, the way of the righteous contrasted with the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous is not easy, but it's following the way of Christ. The way of the wicked is easy. It's easier to do whatever pleases you. It's easiest to do whatever makes you feel most comfortable. It is hard to do what God calls you to, but there is glory and reward and blessing in the way that God has called us. This is how we learn. The Bible teaches us how we need to learn. And Peter is a great teacher. Peter's teaching example should be helpful to all of us. Because as Peter goes through different life situations, and if you've been here for a while, going through 1 Peter, he's writing to a church going through some difficulty. I mean, they're in the midst of persecution. And Peter brilliantly weaves back in and out of struggles and persecution and trials in this life and glorifying Christ and looking to Christ. And the way we teach and we live should be the same. All of our joys and our celebrations, all of our sufferings and our trials should point us back to Christ. And we should be able to look to him in the gospel and how it speaks into those situations, not what the rest of the world is doing. Peter is saying, look at the world. See what they do and look at Christ. Who do you belong to? Whose are you? How do you want to walk like the world or like Christ? 
we are to be the ultimate before and after pictures. We've seen those, right? All those infomercials, the acne ones. Look at me. My face looked like a piece of pepperoni pizza here. And here I'm just clear because of this wonder drug. We've seen the ones for balding. They don't work, trust me. Um, We've seen the ones for weight loss, the before and after pictures. We're obsessed with transformation in our culture. We're obsessed with outward transformation. But Peter is trying to get us towards soul transformation. We're to move from this before picture of zombies. We're walking dead. We're dead in our sins to a shining example of being spotless and blameless in Christ. We are to be the, bef- the ultimate before and after picture. And I think for far too many of us, we're content with only being mostly dead. You come to life in Christ and you still kind of walk with one foot in the world. You still kind of take counseling from the world and maybe sometimes from scriptures. This is as stark as life and death. And Peter says this over and over and over again so we get this. So it gets through our stubborn heads that there is death and suffering in the flesh. And there is life in Christ in the spirit. And it is a matter of life and death. So I want us to see this morning how Peter is trying to teach us. Okay, it seems like Peter's so repetitive. He talks about suffering over and over again. and talks about Christ's suffering. and talks about death and talks about life. Why does he keep saying this? Because it's so important. Because when you get down to life and death, nothing else matters. But if you understand life and death, then everything else changes. Hopefully that's evident for us this morning. So if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and we'll pray and we'll walk back through it together. First Peter chapter four, verses one through six. And if you're here for the first time, we're reading through the uh, ESV, the English Standard Version, and the Bibles are uh, in your pews. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are in heaven and in glorious. Forgive us when our eyes are only on earth. Lord, I just pray this morning that if we understand one thing, that we understand this, that there is death in the flesh, and there is life in the spirit, and there is only life through Christ. We can only live if we die with him to our sin. And let us be people who continually die to our sin, who continually seek to put to death that 
which still lives within us. Lord, let us be people who walk according to your will, not according to the desires of our flesh. Let us stand out. Let us be beacons and examples to those around us. And let us stay rooted in scripture as our example and our authority, not to those who seek to lead us astray down the broad road, which may be fun for a moment, but leads to death in the end. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would guide us and teach us through this passage and that we would look more and love more like you because of the grace that we've been shown. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So this begins with since or therefore. So whenever we begin in that manner, we know it's pointing back towards something right before it. Uh, now, last week was probably one of the most difficult texts in, in all of Scripture, and we, we talked about that. This one is another easy one, of course. There's, there's, there's a lot of things here, and I say that with all sarcasm, because uh, there are so many of th- things in this passage that can trip you up and that are, uh, that are confusing. So I, I want to set the, the stage first here. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Well, He's not talking about Christ suffering in the flesh at the end of chapter 3. The last verse, 322, is not talking about Christ's suffering. It's talking about his ascension. So what is he doing here? Is he jumping around? Well, really, this is continuing the thought in 318. Just turn back a couple verses or a page if you need to. 1 Peter 318 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I mean, that's the essence of the gospel. That's what Peter's getting at. And then for the next few verses, he tells this crystal clear example of what's going on, right? No, we talked about last week. We, it's very confusing what's going on at the end of, of, of chapter 3. But we know that it's, it's an example. It's a commentary on 3.18. And so Peter's saying, all right, I've given you the example that hopefully the, the early church understood better than we do. And now we're picking up back at the beginning of chapter 4. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, now it comes to us. Here's what Christ did. Here's what you do. Arm yourselves. This is a military term. We know what this means. Be ready for battle. And it makes us think of the whole armor of God. Arm yourselves. Have your whole body ready for war. Spiritual warfare. We have all the defensive weapons, the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, the shoes. And we have the one offensive weapon, the sword, the sword of the spirit. So arm yourselves. Christ suffered. You arm yourself with the same way of thinking. So we can't die the the death that Christ did because we didn't live the life that Christ did. We can't raise ourselves from the dead. We are not sitting at the right hand of the Father. So we cannot be like Christ in every way, but we can model our thinking after him. We can think in the way he did. Where Christ did not regard his own comfort, he didn't regard his own life, but he laid it down freely for us. And he was willing and glad to die to the flesh. Willing and glad to put to death the curse so that we might be unburdened from the curse ourselves. And we are to share with that, with with Christ. Because if we share in the thinking of Christ, we are in Him, we share in His sinless life. 
We share in his perfect atoning death. We share in his resurrection. And we will one day share in his glory forever with him. And so when we arm ourselves with the thinking of, of Christ, Paul is, or Peter here is saying, this, what you need to arm yourself with is the sacrificial life example of Christ. He didn't regard his comfort, even his equality with God, something to be grasped, but was willing to put down his life for others and put to death what is in the flesh so that he may live in the spirit. Was, we must have the same mindset toward the flesh that Christ did. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that we have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? How could we have the mind of Christ? The amazing part about the gospel, and we'll look at this in a little bit, but the gospel doesn't stop at conversion. We know that Jesus said, it's better that I go so that I send my spirit, so that my spirit may teach and guide you. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit within us? To give us the mind of Christ, to continually point us to the Father, to put us under the authority of his word. To walk us through this life in the flesh so that we stand firm in the faith. You know, there was a fad a few years ago, those what would Jesus do bracelets. And um, whatever you you may think about them, it's a great idea in theory. But realistically, most people who wore what would Jesus do bracelets didn't know Jesus. They didn't understand Jesus. Because the world loves the easy Jesus. The world loves the one who fed the 5,000, who walked on water, who cared for children. What's not to love about that? But when it comes down to it, do you love the Christ who is willing to die so that he might be with the Father and so that he might bring us with him? What would Jesus do? Jesus would live sacrificially. Jesus would suffer for the sake of others. Jesus would live an example that no matter how much it hurt him and shamed him in this world, judged by man, he knew there was life everlasting at stake. What would Jesus do? Jesus would tell sinners, you are sinners, you need to repent and believe. He would tell those who are broken, I have come to heal you. Jesus walked in every step we did in a way we never could. And so him as our example, it's very different from the selective Jesus that a lot of people picture. I've heard many people say, I like this part about Jesus, but these things I have a hard time with. So as we looked at on Wednesday, what we believe about Christ changes everything else. Because if he isn't fully God, fully man, if he wasn't born of a virgin, if he didn't walk a sinless life, if he didn't suffer and die for sins, if he didn't rise again on the third day, and if he isn't ascended on the right hand of the Father, he is not the Jesus of the Bible, and he is useless to you. So that is our example. That's where we begin. I love this uh, brief line from A poem is a poet. Her name is Kate Wilkinson. And she says, may the mind of Christ, my savior, live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. 
May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day, by his love and power controlling all I do and say. Our minds should be so armed with the thinking of Christ and remembering that we've been transformed by the gospel that we hate sin as much as he did, to put it to death and be willing to die to ourselves so that we might live to Christ. So let's continue in verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Okay, here's the first of many misleading or often confusing portions of our text. Now, it says here, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, this is directly referring to Christ, but it has implications for us. Does that mean we're sinless like, like Christ does? Or like Christ is? Uh, this, in the Greek, and you can't get it in the English, is in the, the perfect tense. It means whoever has suffered, it's something that happened in the past, it is a completed action, but it still has implications for the future. So Christ suffered in the past, but like when you throw a pebble in a pond, the reverberations keep going and going and going. That's what Christ's suffering did, and those reverberations reach to us. And we all know, we look around, we don't have to live in our own skin for more than five seconds to know that we have not ceased from sin. But we have a new status. We have a new position before God. That we live a resurrected life with Christ. There is a new reality. And we've talked about this before, the difference between the dominance and influence of sin. I think it's so helpful that we get this. Because when Christ died, he died to sin forever. And he died to the dominance of sin in the lives of the believer. What does that mean? That means that you are no longer slaves to sin. You have ceased living to sin when you were in Christ. And in the strange way, even when you sin, you're still living in Christ. So sin's dominance died with Christ. But sin's influence still remains. And so that's why we need to be reminded of the gospel over and over and over again. That's why Peter reminds us over and over again. That's why Paul reminds us over and over again. Look what Christ did. He died to sin. He's telling us, you are free in him. Stop living like the world. Stop living like sin still dominates you. And if it wasn't difficult for us in this life, we wouldn't need Christ. And God in his wisdom, every time we sin, every time we fail sends us running to his throne so that we are so connected to him that we can do nothing apart from him, that we grasp onto that living vine and say, I need you, I need you, every hour I need you. Paul illustrates this better than I ever could. I want us to turn to Romans chapter 6. Paul has just finished talking about grace and sin in in the law. And he anticipates a question, which many of us have asked. And if you haven't, you should. Well, if I die with Christ and there's, there's grace, why can't I just sin? Why can't I go on sinning? Why can't I live like the world? Paul is another great teacher because he asks good questions. I'm going to read a rather long passage, but... Um, I'm going to take some time here because I I want you to get this. Because like many other things, Romans acts like the commentary to the New Testament. 
Romans addresses everything that's addressed in the New Testament and applies it to the life of the mature believer. The church in Rome was a mature church. And so for mature believers, this is what Paul gives them as an example to why sin no longer has uh, dominion over us and how we should view sin. So I'm going to start in uh, 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Everybody say amen. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's the dominion. If you've died with Christ, you cease to live to sin. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. The contrast, the positive and the negative, the old self, the new self. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, is this not great news? So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Man, I should should just set the Bible down and go sit down. There is an amen, and there's something final about that. Paul gets our struggle. Paul knows what it's like. He tells us in the very next chapter, I struggle. I do the things I'm not supposed to do. The things I want to do, I can't do. I'm fighting against my own flesh. Paul is reminding us as he reminds himself, I died with Christ. I live with him. Let me not live in the way where I was when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And I can tell you as believers, this message never gets old. This, we never need to stop being reminded that we have died to sin and that we live to Christ. Why? Because we're going to see the way the rest of the world lives. And just as a side note, many people, sadly, when they don't understand that when they die with Christ, they die to the dominance of sin, they're still trying to earn their salvation with penance. They're still trying to make up what they, what they think is lacking in Christ. When he said it is finished, that means it is finished. Sin is died, buried. All you need to do is repent and believe in me. And I want you to walk with me. I want you to look like me. I want you to have my resurrected life, and I want you to have it abundantly because I love you. You don't need to earn anything else. You don't need to keep working. If we don't understand that we die to sin in Christ, we will spend the rest of our lives trying to earn his favor. And if we trust and believe in him, we already had it. His favor looked like his bloody body on the cross. Verse 2. Oh man, Romeo in verse 1. 
The rest of it will move quicker, I promise. Um, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but the will of God. And Peter tells us God's purpose for us here. To set us apart, not to live according to the flesh, but to live for him according to his way, his will. So in the same way we follow Christ in his, in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrected life, we follow him in living to the will of God and not to the passions of our flesh. We talked about this so much in our James study, right? Not to be double-minded. You can't think like the world and think like Christ. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and the world. I want you to see something that's interesting here that you may miss if you're just reading through quickly. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh... We're still in the flesh. There's a time that we'll be living in this flesh until Christ comes again. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Something that may escape us is that passions is plural here. And the will of God is singular. The passions, the desires of the world are many. The will of, the, the will of God is singular. It is unified. One of the early fathers of the church, Origen, said something that is pretty profound. He said, Satan has epithumes, which is the word for desire. It's, it's lusts. It's urges. He, he, Satan acts according to his passions. Satan is very reactive. And Satan draws others into his, into his passions. And he, he urges here, he urges there. But God has thelema, which is will. God is a unified, organized, singular Will and it is in complete agreement with himself. In Satan, there is there is chaos and there is scatter and there is urging here and urging here. And in Christ, in the Father and the Holy Spirit, there is a unified will that is decided, that is perfect, that there is no shadow of turning and there is no surprise. I think that's so helpful for us to see, because Satan works in the chaos. Satan works in the urges. This is what I feel like doing now. This is what I feel like doing now. I'm up, I'm down, I'm all over the place. God's will is unshakable because his character is unshakable. God's will is unified and we are to be unified in that will, not to be scattered like Satan in the rest of the world. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles would do. That was then. He's telling us, all right, you had your fun. You did that before. Peter's not speaking to perfect people. He's speaking to people who live like Gentiles or the world. Just this general term of people who are not true Israel. You live like a pagan. You did that. Stop doing that. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The life in the flesh is for those in the flesh. Let's go through this list with a little uh, checklist, right? Now, this was written to first century church in pagan Rome. You had uh, Greek gods. You had Roman gods. You had all kinds of public sin. Very different from our culture, right? Let's, let's walk through this list. I want you to get your mental, check mark out, your mental checklist out, right? See if we recognize any of these. For the past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality? Check. Passions, this word means lusts, check. Drunkenness, check. Orgies, 
check. Drinking parties, check. Lawless idolatries, throw the blanket over everything else, check. Those same things are happening and now celebrated in our culture. And Peter is telling us that was for the past. That was for the dead man. Don't continue to live like the dead man. In our culture, I don't know if it breaks your heart like it breaks mine, but every one of those is on public display. Every one of those is celebrated. A network television. I mean, does anyone else feel like Sheree and I do? Like we have a hard time watching a show together. Many shows, we don't make it five minutes into it. It's like, man, I got compromised here. I got compromised here. It's like we can't even look to the world's entertainment anymore. It's not just entertainment. It's indoctrination. I heard this pastor say, and it's stuck with me ever since, and it was so convicting. He said, in your week watching TV, how many adulteries have you witnessed? Every show. We don't think about it. Oh, these two fall in love. And the camera fades out, or it doesn't fade out. How many adulteries have you witnessed? How many of these things that Peter lists do we just look at and we become numb to? It's just regular life. It's just what what people do. It's the life of dead people. We are among the living. It is so difficult to go through life seeing those things over and over and over again and trying to live like the living. I mean, this is another mark of a live person. I mean, many of you who I've I've talked to, if you've lived in the world and you've gone through everything in that list, like many of us have, you realize how far you've come. It's the movies I used to watch, the TV I used to watch, the music I used to listen to, the advice I used to get were from people who were doing these things. It was no big deal. But when the Lord changes your heart, he also opens your eyes. He opens your ears and you hear things and you see things that you don't see before. If you're watching things that are convicting you, it's a good thing. Don't walk in the way of the world doing these dead things. Because... Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join in them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You know, that list is really easy to spot. All these things are obvious. But what about the things that are not so obvious? That they're surprised that you don't do. Why don't you think this way? Why don't you make your decisions this way? Why don't you live your life this way? Why don't you spend your money this way? Those are the things we need to watch out for. Because if we understand life and death, like I said at the beginning, we understand that in Christ there is life. I don't care how good your motives seem. If it is not rooted in Christ and Him crucified and your resurrection life in Him, it will lead you to death. And those are the ones that are most difficult. Those are the ones that catch us up. Just a side note. Back to the text. Uh, with respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join in with them. Uh, this word join is like feverishly running after. They're surprised. They're like, come on, everybody's doing it. Join in. Look at this. Isn't it fun? 
Why wouldn't you do this? The world is amazed when you don't seek and desire and do the things they do. Sin loves company. Look at Satan. Satan's first desire was to be like God. And that should have been enough for him, right? But no, he had to lead the angels astray. And it still wasn't enough for him. He had to leave Adam and Eve astray. Satan's playbook is to undermine what God has set in place, what God has called good. Sin loves company, and people who are in this flood of sin want you to join them. They want you to, to step into the flood with them. They say, why don't you watch this show? You're not going to come out and... What's, what's wrong with come out and getting drunk with me? You used to be fun. What, what, what happened? You're not doing this anymore? They look at us like we're, we're cavemen, right? What rock did you crawl out of? I crawled out of the rock, my refuge, my strength. That is where my foundation is, not in this, this world. A, a verse that has been so helpful to me, and it should be on the forefront of every one of our minds, because if we don't get this, we're going to struggle with the world for the rest of our lives in a way that we don't have to. Galatians 2.20, it'll be up on the screen. If you want to memorize a verse, memorize this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. That sums up this entire message. This, that sums up the life of the Christian. Because if that is the foundation of your, your life, you are on the most solid ground possible. No matter what the world says to you. And there is wisdom in recognizing the folly of the world. There is wisdom in recognizing when the world is leading us astray. When the world is speaking into our lives in a way that may not be as egregious as this list. The guys last Monday, when we, we got together, we talked about what it means to be a godly man and what it means to have people in our lives who live according to the world. I mean, we have people, every one of us has people that we care about. We want them to know Christ. We want them to live the life that we have. We want them to have life in Christ the way we do. But many of them, guys, they just want to drink and smoke and curse and chase women, and that's what many guys want to do. And it can be easy to be, to be an influence on us. And we talked about the wisdom it takes to say, I'm not having an influence on this person. I'm not strong enough to stand up to this. I shouldn't put myself in this situation. That is wise. There's nothing wrong with saying, I can't save this person. I don't have the ability in myself to bring a dead man to life. I'm going to pray for him and I'm going to take a step back because this is becoming jeopardizing for me. That's a hard thing for people to say. It's a hard thing for a man to say that I can't stand up to any temptation. Well, you can't. Don't try to. You're not Christ. We're going to take refuge in him. Pray for those who live according to the world. Pray for those who see this as, as, as real life. But recognize our life as a resurrected one. So they are 
surprised when you don't join with them in this flood of debauchery. Um, he just finished talking about Noah. Peter loves to talk about Noah. It's one of his favorite biblical examples. What do we know about Noah and the flood? It, this word is not by accident. It's a flood of debauchery. What happened to the world the last time a flood was talked about? <laughs> Moses in, in Genesis says every bit of their heart was towards evil. It's this same language that look at the warning that God gave to the earth in the times of Noah. This flood of debauchery. It's the same, this term debauchery is the same term used for the prodigal son. It's someone who is self-indulgent and squanders everything that they have without forethought and without planning, living only for the passions of the moment. That's a theme here about passions leading us astray. And they malign you. This word is literally blaspheme. They curse you because you don't want to join in in the flood with them. Ultimately, they are cursing God because of you. Right now, doesn't matter where you, you, you turn, Christians are the butt of jokes. Christians are easy targets in the news. We're laughed at when we pray, when we don't want to put our marriages in, in jeopardy, when we value life, when we stand by God's word instead of the, the shifts of the culture. And the culture maligns us. They blaspheme us, or more accurately, the Christ who is living in us. Because now we're rivals. The contrast comes up again. It's like we've moved across town and we're no longer with the home team anymore. It's like you've moved from New York to Boston and you're, not, you're no longer a Yankees fan but a Red Sox fan. You're going to be maligned. You are dead to me. I can't speak to people from that team. And this is even more so because now we're talking about the spiritual core of who we are. They malign people. I can imagine that as Moses is getting onto the ark, following God's direction, they are shaking their, their fists at him. You fool. Your God can never save you. Come out here and party with us. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's exactly what's happening. Except there's no flood, there's no ark. But, verse 5, there is judgment. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We know, but they don't. Judgment is coming. And this is Peter's encouragement to the people who are being blasphemed, cursed, maligned to their faces. Hasn't gotten this far yet. I mean, we're being cursed in the media. But imagine walking through the streets saying, Christian, we're going to throw you to the lions. What can your God do? You're a fool. We're not being maligned to our faces, but even if we are, judgment is coming. And the same one who died for us will judge us according to his deeds and judge the world according to theirs. And praise God that Christ took our judgment. He died for us. Verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Another verse that is just tripped up Bible scholars and commentators uh, throughout the centuries. Uh, first, we need to understand 
about the gospel. The gospel brings dead people to life. The good news of Jesus Christ and who he is, is for salvation. And it is to remind them after salvation that they live in the spirit and they are to live like Christ. And they do live like Christ. But the gospel is not only just for salvation. It is an encouragement in every area of our lives. For those who already believe, it is an encouragement that the gospel has saved those who are already dead. That the gospel is for those who are left behind when martyrs died for the cause of Christ. This is what Peter's speaking to here. Uh, There's an implied now in there. Verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. Because part of that maligning in the culture, part of that cursing in the culture, was, hey, Christian, I saw your friend be torn apart by the lions. Why didn't your God save him? The same thing that they said to Jesus on the cross. Why isn't he saving you now? Peter was giving them an encouragement. Even when people die in Christ, the gospel has power over the grave. So don't fear their death. Don't be discouraged when the world puts you to death because of me. Um, my brother has been a great encouragement in my life. And a lot of you guys know this. Part of my testimony, um, I was a part of everything on that, that list and more. My brother was a huge uh, influence in, in, in my life. And he reminds me every so often. That I love to see this man who I knew who was once dead is alive now. He said, I pray for you, knowing that you are preaching the gospel. That is the witness of Christ's work. That you are a dead man, and now you're speaking words of life to others because of the life that Christ has given you. You know that famous pirate saying that dead men tell no tales? That is not for the believer. Because this dead man, this dead man tells tales. And I'm looking at dead men and women who died to sin, who have the spirit of Christ living in them, who can tell the tales of his marvelous works. That is the beauty of the gospel. And Paul, or excuse me, I keep saying Paul, Peter ends in verse 6 where he began. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Again, this is something we we miss in the English that you get in the Greek, but these are um, parallel statements. So it literally says that you're judged in the flesh according to man, that you might live in the spirit according to God. This is the contrast. That even though those martyrs who were burned at the stake, thrown to the lines, they were judged according to men the same way Christ was judged according to men. You are brought to eternal life so you can live according to God. That's the beauty of the gospel. We move from being living and being judged according to man and living and being judged according to Christ. So how do we conclude this morning? This is a great message. Sounds good from the pulpit. It is hard in our lives. It's hard in my life. The hardest thing in the Christian life is to live every day remembering this. Is to embrace our death to the flesh. Embrace our death to comfort. And die to the things that glorify us. 
to set aside our passions to live to Christ. It is hard. And without running to Christ, without trusting in the Spirit, without crying out to the Father, you're going to be up to your nose in the flood just like the rest of the world. But as the body, we speak truth to one another, we encourage one another, and we remind one another who we are in Christ. Because we will all need to be reminded. Most of us will need to be reminded before we reach our homes. And we need to be reminded over and over and over again. But like Christ, we must die to the world because in order for there to be life, there must be death first. But remember that Christ died. He died for us to have life and to have it abundantly in him. And with that, we should rejoice. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Our sins are dead. They were buried with Christ. You died that we might live. Someone would barely die for a righteous person, let alone a sinner. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. That we can live in him. Lord, help us to energize us, to encourage us in the face of cursing, of trials, of a world that looks less and less like you. That we will remember who we are, whose we are, and the price that you paid for us. Lord, for every believer in here, let us never forget. Let us constantly remind ourselves that I was buried with Christ. It is no longer I, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I now live to the Son of God who died for me. For those in here who don't know you, Lord. Lord, break their hearts like mine was broken. Let them know that there is death in the world. There is only life in you. Let them know that in that life, you'll have life everlasting. I just encourage you, if you don't know the Lord, turn from the world, turn from your sins, repent and believe. That we may celebrate together the life everlasting in Christ Jesus. And in his beautiful name I pray. Amen.